And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning. It's uh, it's the hump day edition of The Real Investment Show. It's Wednesday of course, as we are also starting a new day, right? It is the month of March as we kick off the first trade day of March. Now, normally uh, you get a little bit of buying on the first day of March, you know, just potentially, you know, kind of portfolio window dressing, et cetera. Futures are pointing up a little bit this morning so far. Um, but that's been the case for the last couple of days here. We've had these kind of markets that open higher. Um, and then sell off all day long. Again, yesterday, another kind of disappointing day in the market. Market opened up, wound up selling off all day, closed lower yesterday. Um, we did actually violate the 50-day moving average, but just barely yesterday. So we don't really count that as a violation just yet. If the market can close above that today, then it really didn't matter. Uh, we saw the same thing um, back on Friday. Market closed below 50-day. Uh, got back above it the next day. So, uh, so again, you know, just we're kind of flirting with that support level right now. But again, right below that is the 200-day moving average as well and that rising trend line coming up from the October lows. So as we talked about yesterday, you know, we're at that kind of critical support. And today's uh, market commentary that is now posted out on the website, actually, um, you'll get an email at 7.30 this morning, but our, our daily market commentary just touches on this fact one more time is that we have a very narrow margin between a continued bull market and what this would be determined as, termed as a bull trap. In other words, a bull rally that kind of lured all the bulls back in just to, for the bear to come back and, and trap them and push markets lower. So again, a very, very small window of margin here, about 1% to the downside, and potentially we're going to trigger uh, a lot of program selling. Because there's, you know, if, if you take a look at all these algorithms and things that are driving the markets these days, they're all kind of using the same technical levels. And so this 200-day moving average and uh, where the market is right now is really stacked up there. There's a lot of program trading sitting right at that level. So if you begin to break that level with any type of veracity, all those programs are going to kick in and you're going to get a lot more selling. And that's why we've seen this before, is that when you kind of break these support levels, the markets take a very quick dive lower. And that's because of all these program sellings that is out there. All those algorithms trip, uh, you know, trigger and then they all start to sell at the same time and buyers just immediately go away. So uh, that's why you get these kind of very sharp sell-offs in the markets when that happens. Again, nothing to worry about at the moment. Still paying attention to this very carefully. But, you know, again, we are kind of at that very, very dangerous level. Again, still working through our sell signals. We're not there yet. We're about halfway through that process. So, again, markets could simply just kind of hold in here and just kind of trade sideways for a bit, work off that condition. Markets are fairly oversold enough for at least kind of a short-term rally. We've been trying to rally every day this week so far. It's just not been able to hold on to it every time we get a little bit of selling. Uh, it's a little bit of buying. Sellers kind of keep showing up and selling stocks. So again, that's just, you know, this is part of that process of working off that advance that we had from the December lows. Again, it was a very outsized advance. NASDAQ was, had, had a big move because of technology stocks, particularly S&P was up over 7% for the uh, first month or so. You know, that kind of an outsized move has to pull back and relax. That's all that we've, we've seen happen. We're just kind of giving up those gains 
that we had made since the beginning of this year. Very normal in the process. Again, nothing to worry about here. But again, you know, now we're starting to get a lot of the bearish commentary coming back out again, right? It's like, you know, here, here it comes. You know, big bear market's coming. Maybe. Um, you know, there's certainly some things to be concerned about, right? Inflation's still high. Interest rates are still going up by the Federal Reserve. You know, there are plenty of reasons to be bearish, as we've talked about before. Um, but markets have been doing much better technically. So again, it's this battle between technicals and fundamentals. This is kind of what we come down to. And eventually, fundamentals will win. They, they always do. Valuations in terms of the market, still very high. We have not corrected. In fact, if you go back and look at the peak of the market in 2020, we really have not adjusted valuations much from the peak of the market in 2020. Of course, the difference was is that the E was rising in, in valuations, the earnings were going up in 2020 as prices were going up. But now we have earnings falling and prices really haven't gone much of anywhere. So despite you know, this fact that we had this very kind of you know, dismal year last year, prices really haven't fallen that much. Yes, they were down about 19% last year, but with this rally so far, we're only down about 15, 16% from the peak and earnings have fallen a lot more. So that's keeping valuations elevated. So when you start to look at a valuation reversion and start talking about, well, you know, where's the right time to really be long stocks? Well, that's when you've got a good valuation reversion that's been done. So if you look at the difference, 2009 is a good example. A 50% decline in stock prices, yes, earnings fell, but you had a big reversion in valuations at that time that made it a much better environment for picking stocks. Problem today is, is that yes, we've been through a corrective market over the last year. We're still in a corrective market this year so far. Yes, we're having little bounces along the way, but earnings are declining, but they're not declining rapidly at this point because the economy is still holding up because of all that liquidity we inject in the system and prices are holding up. So valuations really have not reverted to any degree to speak of relative to where we were in 2020, not typically of what you would expect during a bear market where you have a big mean, big reversion to the mean of valuations. That could still come though. Uh, and again, as we've talked about before and in Tuesday's post uh, on our website, we talked about corporate profit margins, which are still very high here. And they're high because of inflationary pressures. They're high because of all this liquidity in the system. That is ultimately going to have to revert at some point. The question is just when does that occur and you know where does it occur, right? So, uh, and as we talked about, look, the Fed is still hiking rates here. That is still applying a break to the economy. Those rate hikes have not showed up in the economy yet. That will happen later on this year. So again, the, the risk to the markets is certainly there and present. Markets are continuing to hold up here. And you know the, probably the real risk for markets is going to be later this year um, as that break of those rate hikes, et cetera, really start to feed through you know, kind of into the markets and into the economy as a whole. And consumers eventually will buckle. It's just a question of how long they can sustain higher rates and again, they have enough in savings right now. They have enough kind of on credit at the moment to sustain these higher interest rates for a bit longer. But that reversion will eventually come. And this really kind of feeds through to a lot of areas of the market. One thing we'll talk about when we come back from the break is housing and housing affordability, because it's an interesting aspect of how we got ourselves into this mess to start with 
and and why we're here and the fact that nobody really recognizes this problem but they want to complain about housing affordability. So we'll get into that. But again, get by the website, the latest daily market commentary. I've already posted it this morning. You'll get an email at 7.30. If you're not on the email list, simply subscribe at the website. You'll get an email right at 7.30 every morning before the market opens with our daily market commentary, market trading update, what earnings, what economics you know are happening that day. Keep you, Get you all prepared for the trading day. That's every morning at 7.30. Just subscribe at the website while you're there. Also, make sure you're subscribed to the weekly newsletter. That also gets you our Tuesday take as well. And make sure you subscribe to our Before the Bell channel. That's our new YouTube channel for our three minutes on markets and money. So two, two channels keep you updated on everything that you need. Lots of stuff at the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Okay, quick break. We'll come back. We'll get into why housing is so expensive and only old people will understand this, but <laughs> we'll come back and talk about that. Don't go away. More of The Real Investment Show coming right up. Investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show YouTube channel has all our videos ready for your easy access. Now with the new and improved Before the Bell reports, Candid Coffee, and Lunch and Learn replays, plus each day's radio shows like Technically Speaking Tuesday, Financial Fitness Friday, and the latest analysis from Lance Roberts and Michael Leibowitz. Subscribe and bookmark our YouTube channel for The Real Investment Show, or just click on the show link at realinvestmentadvice.com realinvestmentadvice.com The Real Investment Show Welcome back to the show this morning. You know, there was a time that in this country that you know people worked and they saved and you know they wanted to buy a house etc and they would do that and as i as i said just for you know in the last segment what i'm about to tell you is something that really only the older generation like me and brent will will understand because we grew up in this environment and when we went to make our first home purchases we can tell you our stories um you know, it was something that we knew what the process was and it took effort on our part and we eventually could buy a home. Um, when I bought my first house, it was back in the, the, I graduated college in 1987 and, sorry, 19, yeah, 1987, went to work right before the financial crash, <laughs> crash in 87. Yeah, um, wound up buying my first house in, in, you know, kind of the early 90s. And in order to, sorry, yeah, in the early, it was about 1994, I think, 1994-95. But back then to buy a house, first of all, when people were buying houses, you were buying a, a mod, what we would consider a very modest home today, right? It was 1,100 square feet, two, you know, it was three bedrooms, one and a half bath, two car garage, that type of thing. It wasn't these, you know, three, four hundred thousand dollar McMansions that, you know, people want to try to live in 
um, well beyond their means. But, you know, there was a we had a reasonable expectation of what our first home purchase should be. And this is because of, of our parents, right? My, I grew up in a house that was 1,100 square feet, three bedrooms, one and a half baths. That was what I grew up in. It had a big yard where we played baseball, right? And that was the expectation, right? There was no expectation of living in these multi-million dollar type houses, right? But the big, the big driver of that, and, and Brent, what was your first house like? Do you, do you remember your first house? My first house was a mobile home. Oh, the, your first real house. The right? first real house? Yeah. Yeah, I remember it. Yeah. How big was it? Uh, maybe 1,400 square feet, three bedroom, two bath, two car garage yep. attached. Yep. And yeah. And how much money did you have to save up for a down payment? <sighs> you remember? I don't. Really? I don't recall. Most people don't, most people remember that. That's because that's your first big that's your first really big purchase. Yeah, yeah. By so. the time we bought that house, mm -hmm. they were doing funny things already. Really? So yeah. when was that? <sighs> Would have been in eighty three. Really? Eighty two, eighty three, something like that. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of the point, though. That is that. But even though you know fourteen hundred square feet, it's not a huge house. No, that type of thing. No. Very modest. Had a great back porch. That's why we bought it. <laughs> there you go. So, but when I saved up and, and had to buy my first house, I had to have twenty percent down, right? And and you know, so you had to you had to really save up for it. And you know, and one of the things that we always forget about housing, and we talk about housing affordability and these type of things. And today, this is the big complaint, right? Everybody's complaining they can't afford houses. Houses are too expensive. Well, let's just do the math here really quick. If you lower the requirements to buy a home, what happens? More people can afford houses, right? Great. So you have more you have more demand. If you have more demand than you have the supply of homes, what happens to the price of homes? Now again, there is a limit to housing because of where most people want to live. Most people want to live in or around a major city. This is why, you know, this is why we talk about the elect, you know, there's a lot of complaining about the electoral college. We need to get rid of the electoral college. The reason we have an electoral college is because we're a representative republic, not a democracy. And what the electoral college does is allow states like Wyoming that have four people living there to have an equal voice and and who is basically the president of the country and who runs it. So that's why we have an electoral college. It, it, it keeps these major metro complexes, Houston, Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York, Florida. If you had a true democracy, the major cities would determine the outcome of every single election. Uh, election. Nobody would have a voice in Nebraska. So that's why you have electoral college. But that also goes to the fact that most people, because of that's where the population centers are, they want to live near a major metropolitan area. Why? Work, transportation, airports, you know, ease of access, convenience, all those type of things. It's where society is. So there's only so many houses that can be built in a certain area. So there's a limit. If you want cheap housing, 
go to the middle of Wyoming and you can get cheap housing. Go live in Montana, you can get cheaper housing. Just nobody wants to live there. So when we hear about these complaints about unaffordability of homes, where are those homes mostly located? Los Angeles, San Francisco, San Diego, Austin, Houston, Florida, Miami, New York, right? That's, where, that's why. And why do we have so much demand for houses? Because we've now given that we've told everybody two things. One, you should buy a home. Everybody should buy a home. And two, we're going to make it as easy as humanly possible for you to buy it. And, of course, 2008 was a prime example of subprime mortgages, ninja loans, no income, no job loans. Here, let me just give you money to go buy a piece of property. And this all sounds great in theory. The problem is, is that you really can't afford it. In fact, there was a recent survey out. I thought it was kind of funny because during the pandemic, when we gave all these people money, they had $1,500, $3,000. They go, oh, wow, I've got enough to go buy a home. And so they all went out and bought houses. And, they were, and, these, and, and these young people were buying houses sight unseen. They were overpaying for houses. They were buying houses that were not in great neighborhoods. But they just they were told, right? The media told them they had to own a home and that renting was terrible. If you're renting, you're an idiot. You need to go buy a home. So they took what little bit of money the government gave them, ran out and bought a home, and now they're complaining that there is a huge dissatisfaction rate of these millennial home buyers because nobody told them about homeowners association dues, property taxes, maintenance, upkeep, you know, all these other things, and, and they can't afford it. Why am I bringing all this up? The National Association of Realtors drives the narrative for the home industry, realtors, etc. We have an article out today. In 2022, home prices climbed exponentially faster than income. With monthly mortgage payments on a standard starter home increasing by 49% from a year ago, according to the National Association of Realtors, home price growth only began to cool down towards the end of the year due to rising mortgage rates. Makes a certain amount of sense. People ready to buy a home would do so now before they get priced out. Making a smaller down payment also gives you wiggle room to use your extra cash for home repairs, closing costs, emergency expenses, moving costs, and more. So if the house that you're eyeing is a real fixer-upper and know you'll need to spend money on home improvements, consider your options and make a smaller down payment is worth the trade-offs. Here's the point of this article. The, the article is laying out all the reasons you should put down less money on a house. And there's also plenty of avenues for you to do that. As the National Association of Realtors points out, FHA loans are generally require lower down payments of at least 3.5%, unlike conventional loans. CNBC Select evaluated the best mortgage lenders if you're looking for a home with a low down payment. But there's the problem. Why do you have home price unaffordability? Yes, part of it was a function of low interest rates, but that's not really the driver. The driver is, is that you had low interest rates and no down payment requirements. So anybody that could just scrape together a few nickels could go out and buy a home, even though they really can't afford it. So if you want lower home prices and you want home stability in prices, go back to a 20% down payment. Now, I know that sounds cruel, 
is like, oh, well, you know, if you put if you make me have a 20 percent down payment, I'll never be able to afford a home. That's probably because you shouldn't afford a home. Right. Again, there's, you know, one of the things that we've demonized, we've demonized a couple of very bad things in this country. We demonize blue collar work. And we told people that being a blue collar laborer is, is terrible. You should not be a blue collar laborer. Yet those are some of the highest paying jobs in the country. Um, you know, we, we nobody wants to do them. Nobody wants to be a plumber, electrician, you know, oil, oil field worker, you know, whatever. But these pay these pay lots of money. And when something breaks down in your house that you bought that you couldn't afford, who do you call? It ain't Ghostbusters. Plumber shows up, he fixes it, gives you a $400 bill for it. Oh, my gosh, I don't have that kind of money. Right, because you can't afford the house. You rent. All those responsibilities belong to the landlord. And what does renting give you? Renting gives you the opportunity to save money for down payment. And here's the point of all this. If you can't afford to save a 20% down payment on a house, you probably don't have the free cash flow to afford the taxes, the maintenance, the upkeep, the insurance, and all the things that go along with the house without forcing you, yourself into an ability where you have no savings because the home is eating up everything extra that you make. Of course, this is why when you take a look at the average savings rate of Americans, they don't have $500 to meet an emergency. They own a home, but they can't save any money. Look, I'm not eschewing the idea that you should be a homeowner. I think you should be a homeowner, right? It's part of the, of the value of being, you know, an American. You own a piece of property. You don't really own the property. You kind of rent the property because you still pay property taxes. But you get the point. But renting is not a bad thing until you get yourself into a position that you can afford the home. You bring back the 20% down payment. You build stability in the housing market. You get it back to an inflation-adjusted asset. And you stop this excess price problem that we have in houses. Be right back after the break. The Real Investment Advice blog. It's required reading for the informed investor. Catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com. So just to finish up our conversation on Mike should have a 20% down payment on homes if you want housing affordability. Just as a byproduct of that, the National Association of Realtors is the, you know, kind of the driving force in the real estate market. Huge political lobby as well. So when you see a lot of these, uh, you know, comments coming out of the government about housing affordability, etc., that's all stemming from the National Association of Realtors. Um, but, you know, What's important is, is that they are a spokesperson, basically, for the realtor industry. And just as an example of what we're talking about is back in 1999, there was only about 750,000 realtors in the country. Of course, when you start creating this environment where you have no money down loans or, you know, 3% down loans or you're splitting up mortgages to 80-20 to avoid PMI and all this other stuff, 
and not requiring that 20% down payment, again, you have a whole lot more demand for people wanting to buy homes because it's not costing them anything to get into the house. They've got no skin in the game, which is also another problem. When people have put 20% down payment on a house, they tend to take care of it more. If you don't have any money into the house, who cares? In October of 2008, or sorry, 7, 2007, the number of realtors had grown from 750,000 to almost 1.4 million. So basically almost doubled. Today, you now have a record number of realtors in the country. People, you know, quit their jobs to go be realtors. Back in 2007, 2008, we were talking about on the, on the radio show how doctors and lawyers and people with real careers were quitting their job to go be real estate agents because it was just so easy to sell houses. I mean, everybody wanted to buy a house. And again, when you don't have any down payment, you know, it creates that market. So, of course, the National Association, and the point is, is that, you know, the narrative from the media, and this is what you've got to be careful of, and this goes to... You know, since Danny's not here today, I'm going to take his place being the financial planner today. But the point is, is that, you know, as individuals, we can't listen to the narrative that is in the mainstream media because it's got an angle. They're trying to sell you a product. When you listen to CNBC, they are selling you a product. They're selling you a mutual fund or a manager or something. That's what they. That that's how. How does CNB? How does CNBC get on the air? How do they stay on the air? They have to have advertisers. If they don't have advertisers, they're not on the air. They need that money from the advertisers, and they need you to view it, right? So that's why viewerships is so important. Because if there's no viewership, then advertisers won't advertise, right? That's the whole thing. The National Association of Realtors is selling you a stick. They're trying to support their realtors. They need them. It, that's their job. Their job is to sell you a product, and they're selling you homes. And they lobby very aggressively for low, lower mortgage rates and easier terms and all these type of things because that benefits their lobby group and, and, and benefits the realtors. So as individuals, we have to step back and say, look, I know I can buy this house for 3.5% down. I know I can do that, and I can save 3.5%. But as an individual, I should be saying, you know what? I need to put 10% down or 20% down on this house. Two things, reasons why. One is that if I can save up 20% for a down payment, then I know I've got the cash flow at home to do that. So once I pay for that down payment on the house, I know that I can, A, afford now the new mortgage payment, and the taxes and the insurance and the maintenance and the upkeep and all those other things that come along with it. Because I was able to save that money. We also need to start having our own discussions with us. You know, look, it's, you know, every time I go to buy a home, right? We're out looking for a home now. Sold our house back in July, told you the story. So we're, we're, we're looking around and we're trying to find, you know, a house at a good price. And so we're shopping. But we're not in a rush. We have, we have a year and a half on our lease right now. We've got no, we are not rushing at all. 
taking her time. But, you know, I, I talked to my realtor and I'm like, okay, here's my budget. And consistently I'm getting houses that are above my budget. Super nice homes, right? Well, here's this house in this neighborhood and it's a great, it's going to cost this, it's like it's too much money. I'm not, I'm not going to pay that much money for a house. But that's what they do because see, and, and again, if you ever have ever shopped for a home with a realtor, you say, look, here's my budget. And, and, and if you watch these real estate shows, they're even, they're even expose this even more. They get these couples. I love these real estate shows, right? The, the couple goes, we're out shopping for a home in some area of, of California, whatever it is. I am a, I, I am a part-time taxidermist and my husband's a school teacher and our budget is $1.5 million, right? And so, <laughs> and they have these fantastic budgets for these homes because there's no down payment requirement, right? So I need this million and a half dollar home and I, I don't really have a job career to support that, but we're going to buy this house. And so the first thing that the realtor does is they take them to this really beautiful home, man. You walk them in and it's like, wow, everything's perfect. And, and they go, well, this house is only $3 million, right? It's, it's just, you know, it's way over their budget. But now, but see, now you're hooked. Now you're going... Now every house you look at after that sucks compared to that one. And so what you wind up doing is you wind up overpaying for a house. You wind up buying too much house, paying too much more for it because you want all the little fancy bells and whistles. But that's the trap we get ourselves into, right? It's, it's, it's the old case of a you know, champagne taste and beer budget. And we've got to be realistic when we're going to buy houses about what we can truly afford and what we truly need to live in. Right. And we have the and we've been taught this whole narrative by the media that, you know, the home is the sacred place and it's got to be everything you ever wanted to be. And that's not really the case. You know, when I bought my first home and and over the years, you know, I bought my starter house and we fixed it up and we did all those type of things. And we graduated through that whole process over time. And as home prices increased, we were able to roll that equity from that house into the next house and get a little bit nicer house, so forth and so on, right? But that's the process. That's the process that my parents went through. It's the process that, you know, people of the younger, the older generation did. Today, you know, we're trying to shortcut all that, and there's financial consequences for this. And this is why you see so much angst about you know, why capitalism is broken. I can't afford these things. And, you know, I can't have what I want. And, you know, I need it now. And I and I have no patience to wait or to work for it or to save for it. So it's not fair. I need, I need some type of, of bailout. But that's not the way money works. And that's not the way life works in general. And we've done a very poor job of educating individuals and the consequence of that lack of education and then also allowing the National Association of Realtors and other lobby groups to infiltrate the economy and to promote these financially bad ideas just for the benefit of allowing people to, to buy more than what they should do. And basically, that's what you're, it's kind of what you're doing, Right. We know drugs are bad for people, but let's come up with a program to give drugs to everybody, right? And then we're shocked by the fact that we've got a bunch of addiction in the country, right? You know, you, you, know, you create these outcomes where you say, 
and, and these programs to allow people to buy things they can't afford. And then you're shocked by the idea that people can't afford these things. And they're dependent upon more and more government support to do it. So, you know, and this is why it's so important. You know, uh, Danny and Richard just did a program about raising money smart kids. And it's, and it's, it's a very good review of things we need to be teaching our children and helping them understand that making bad financial decisions early on in life has long-term lasting consequences. And this is what we have done to this whole generation that's coming up. We have taught them to make very bad financial decisions early on in life from speculating and gambling in the stock market to where they lose, lose their money to buying houses they can't afford, to buying cars they can't afford. You know, social media has been a terrible, terrible thing for the younger generation in terms of warping their views about life and expectations and the things they've, they've got to have. You know, and, and you know, they're, as, as when we were coming up, we were taught there's a difference between wants and needs. My father always had a great saying when I was growing up. He says, you may not have everything you want, but you have everything you need. I didn't agree with him because I really wanted the G.I. Joe with the Kung Fu grip, and I needed that, right? But when I was growing up, the things I needed, I had to go out and mow lawns for, wash cars for, whatever it was, earn the money to go buy those things. The things that I wanted, things I needed, food, shelter, clothing, he provided that. Love, tension, those things, the important things. Social media has destroyed that understanding between wants and needs. Be right back after the break. Don't go away. Daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. And welcome back to the show this morning. So uh, just getting ready to kind of open up uh, the markets for the day. Crude oil down just a little bit this morning, down about 88 cents a barrel. A uh, little bit more of a build yesterday in the latest oil report. Natural gas prices, of course, have taken a huge beating. And in fact, it is the largest decline in natural gas prices in recent history on a percentage change basis, which is why we recently added a couple of natural gas plays to our portfolio as well to you know potentially pick up at least a reflexive bounce on um, natural gas prices here. And again, you know, commodities ebb, ebb and flow back and forth. So, you know, there's a real potential here. We could see a pickup in natural gas prices over the next you know, few months, the rest of this year. So we'll see. Um, futures are pointing, I don't want to say strongly higher. They are higher <laughs> this morning. <laughs> 
we know we keep having these and as i said at the opening you know we keep having these kind of market opens that are positive this week and we had written in last week's newsletter we expected a bit of a rally this week um the market tries to rally every morning and then we wind up giving it off you know giving up in the afternoon and and that's not real healthy we need we need a day where markets are kind of up and they kind of build on themselves all day and show a little bit of buying power coming in and again we're kind of just flirting with that very important support line in the market so we need really need buyers to show up here if we're going to hold these levels so again we're in a kind of a very tenuous position uh at the moment but you know trying to just hang in there a bit now you know one of the things that you know as, as we kind of continue to look forward to is, is really this kind of economic situation within the markets itself and and again as we talk about the issue of of higher inflation and the issue of of higher interest rates and the impact upon the um you know individuals that are just trying to make ends meet in this country in, in terms of just trying to buy groceries and food and gas and you know those type of things you know higher interest rates weighs on that in fact we're seeing more and more credit card purchases going to just buying the necessities right so Normally, credit cards are used for the luxury items, right? The trip, you know, shopping spree for new, so new clothes or whatever. But now we're seeing more and more of those credit card purchases going to grocery stores, you know, gas, those type of things, just trying to make ends meet, having to put more and more on that, you know, on debt. So, and again, this is starting to impact the consumer, um, Home Depot recently missed earnings for the first time since 2019, talking about slowing consumer demand. This morning, Lowe's, Home Depot's competitors, also missed revenue estimates. Same reason, slowing traffic. And again, this is also not really surprising as well. This is also part of that bullwhip effect that we've talked about previously on the show, which is we gave people all this money right and then we said oh by the way here's this money to spend and you can't go to the office and so now everybody's looking at home and they're going well i've got to work at home now and i don't really have a home office or i don't have an area in my house and i don't have a good computer or whatever it is so they all took this money ran out and started renovating their houses building patios and porches and and home offices and all these type of things and so now they have this stuff and so now what that created was is you pulled forward all this demand. So in other words, Brent was going to build a porch onto his trailer. And, you know, he was going to do that in a couple of years, right? Because he's not, he's not real aggressive about doing these home improvement things. He gets around to them eventually. My father-in-law, my father-in-law, he was uh, uh, having to replace the, the hood vent in the kitchen over the stove. And this project should have taken a weekend to complete. Maybe. Yeah. Three half, years later. Half a day. Three years later, we finally hired somebody to go finish the job for him. <laughs> so, but the point is, is that we pull forward all this demand, right? So instead of Brent waiting three years to build the porch on the back of his house, his mobile home, he built it now. So now he's got a mobile home. Is it one of those like the the silver bullet cans? Homes? Oh, the airstream. Is it the? It was, was not an airstream. It was not no, an airstream. No, no. You cannot afford those things. 
It's like buying a small house. It well, is. it is a small house, but yeah. yeah, they're insane. Yeah, if you can get them, even if you can get them, even the used ones are insane. Yeah, but they they are cool. Mm-hmm. It looks, I mean, just paint Bud Light on the side of it, you're good to go. I've got a cousin. Uh, she and her husband have retired, uh-huh. and that's what they're doing is air streaming around the country. I had a cu- I had a client. I had a couple. Um, this was back in 2007, prior to the financial crisis. Came in cutest couple ever. She looked, she was the spitting image of Elizabeth Taylor. Oh, my. Seriously. Yeah. And she wore the pearls and everything. Mm-hmm. So, but just dark hair, the whole mm-hmm. night. I mean, just if you put her and Elizabeth Taylor in the same room, couldn't tell. Any of her seven husbands couldn't have told the yeah. difference. Like right. Seasters. <laughs> exactly. So her and her husband, though, he's retiring from a big oil company and, and, and they're going to buy this. They're going to sell their home and they're going to go travel around the country. Mm-hmm. And, and they're the cutest couple, right? They're, they're sitting in, you know, they've been married forever, like 20 years and, and 20, 25 years they've been married. And they're sitting in my conference room next to each other, holding hands. And we're talking about their plans, the whole nine yards. And they're going to rent this mobile home and go drive around the country and, and, and live in this mobile home and explore, right? They're going to check off their bucket list. Right. So they do this and it's great, right? So I don't see them for a year because they're out traveling, <laughs> right? Next time they, they call me up, they say, yeah, we need to come in. We need to do our annual review. So they show up and, and, and the annual review, and they, I go, well, what's going on? I said, well, how was it? So well, we're, selling the, we're selling the trailer. And I'm like, well, okay. So apparently y'all got, you got your bucket list done. And that's when I noticed they're sitting on opposite sides of the table now. <laughs> <laughs> got to have your space. <laughs> and that was what she said. She oh, said, really? Yes. She said, for 25 years... He was at work all day. Yeah. <laughs> when you're living in a trailer on top of each other for a year, you remember all, you find all these bad habits you did not know existed right. because yeah. he was gone all day. So that's just one more incentive not to retire. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Work longer, live happier. <laughs> Happy wife, happy life. That's all that is to it. But this is about, you know, but, but again, kind of going back. We pulled forward all this demand. Almost forgot where I was going. Uh, we pulled forward all this demand, and now there's this void that's showing up. People don't need to go out and buy a new lawnmower. They've already bought one. They don't need to go out and buy, um, you know, a new barbecue pit. They already bought one. They've already bought, you know, all the landscaping stuff that they need for their house, and so now we're starting to see this consumption slowdown occurring and it's occurring even Walmart when they reported their recent earnings announcements target talking about buildup of inventories talking about slower foot traffic you know those type of things that is those early signs of that recessionary drag on the economy so you know and again as we said before going into earnings season it wasn't really as important about what the companies actually reported it was more about their outlook what they said about the consumer and you're seeing the early impacts on consumers because they're now running out of money and they've already bought stuff and there's no more money coming in right there's no more checks coming you know there's no more at, at this point benefits are running out in a lot of cases and so it's, it's the early knockoff effects. And again, as we talked about before, the reason the economy continues to hold up and seemingly remain stronger than what you would expect 
first of all, it's a lot of seasonal adjustment problems, and those are quirks that are going to get worked out over the next year or so as they go back to revise the data. But it's also a function of all that liquidity that you had in the market still working its way through. Because remember, just because the consumer spends it doesn't mean that that's where it stops. You know, and this is the one thing that I think a lot of the main, a lot of the people expecting a recession, and this is why we're talking about probably not a recession last year, because what people forget is, is that if I get money from the government, right? So I get $1,500. Brent runs a home remodeling company, right? So I, I hire him to come build a porch on my trailer. So I give him 1500 bucks. Well, that's not where the money stops. Brent has to go out, spend that 1500 bucks to, or some of it, right? He's got to have a profit. So he goes out and spends some of it to buy the materials from Lowe's. Lowe's had to get that material shipped in from other companies. They're just the warehouse or et cetera. So they buy it from the producers, which is also supporting jobs. So there's, there's a multiplier effect within the economy as that money flows through the system. And as it flows through the economy, it continues to support economic growth for a while. But eventually that, that multiplier effect or that economic benefit wanes. At some point, it gets so diluted within the economy, it continues to move because even the, the producers that sold the, the lumber to Lowe's had to go pay the mining company or the, the harvesting companies to harvest the trees and the lumber companies to, to mine. You know, it just goes through the system. And eventually, though, it is so diluted it no longer provides the benefit. The point is, is that takes time for that to occur. And so that's why this lag effect on this economic data is taking longer than what many expected and why the why markets and why the economy seems to be holding up now. It's just we're not to the point that that dilution effect has completely taken hold. All right, that wraps up the show for today. Get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. That's realinvestmentadvice.com. Make sure you subscribe for our daily market commentary, our weekly newsletter. These are all separate subscriptions, so you can pick and choose what you want. They're all free. Our Before the Bell YouTube channel which is our daily three minutes on markets and money put out every morning. Of course, this channel, make sure you're subscribed, click the little bell. We appreciate you. See you back here tomorrow with Michael Leibowitz to talk about markets, money, and more right here on The Real Investment Show. Have a great day.